Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a mango daiquiri. What are you having, Jenny? I'm drinking a sangria. On today's episode, we're exploring three tragedies that highlight the dangers garment workers faced in the past and unfortunately still face today. The first is the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. The Triangle Factory, owned by in-laws Max Blank and Isaac Harris, Paris opened in 1901. It was located on the top three floors of the Ash Building on the corner of Green Street and Washington Place in Manhattan. They were the city and possibly the entire U.S.'s largest shirtwaist manufacturer. And so everyone knows a shirtwaist is now what we would call a woman's blouse and was one of America's earliest fashion trends to quote-unquote transcend the class divide. The factory was a true sweatshop and had cramped and unsanitary working conditions. Staff consisted mainly of teenage girls who immigrated from Europe and did not speak English. They were forced to work long hours for little pay, just $15 a week. The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire Memorial website states, quote, According to one survey taken in the 1890s, the average work week in textile shops was 84 hours, 12 hours for every day of the week, end quote. Blank and Harris were criticized by labor unions, particularly the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, who accused them of treating their workers poorly and demanded shorter hours for the workers, safer conditions, and higher pay. Suffragists supported the union when they went on strike in 1901. Though many factory workers agreed to the union's demands, Blank and Harris were one of the few companies who ignored them. They even went as far as hiring police as thugs to imprison the striking women and paying off politicians to look the other way. In 1911, at the time of the fire, there were four elevators with access to the factory floors, but only one was fully operational and the workers had to file down a long, narrow corridor in order to reach it. There were two stairways down to the street, but one was locked from the outside to prevent stealing, workers from sneaking out, or union organizers from coming in. The only other stairway opened inward. The fire escape was so narrow that it would have taken hours for all the workers to use it, even in the best of circumstances. No sprinkler systems were in place. On March 25th, 1911, there were about 500 to 600 staff working when a fire broke out in the factory's cutting room around 4.30 p.m., possibly from a cigarette butt being thrown in a fabric wrap bin. A manager tried using a nearby fire hose, but the hose was rotted and the valve was rusted. Since the factory had thousands of pounds of fabric, the fire quickly spread throughout the factory. Workers did their best to escape through the freight elevator, fire escapes, and stairways. Those who were on the floors above the fire, including the owners, escaped to the roof and then to adjoining buildings. However, employees on the ninth floor were locked inside and were not able to break the door down. Onlookers crowded around the horrific scene. During the fire, the building's rear fire escape collapsed, causing workers to remain trapped inside. The freight elevator eventually broke as well. Some workers jumped from the building's windows to their deaths, and others attempted to slide down elevator cables but lost their grip and died. The local fire department arrived quickly on the scene but had trouble making their way through the bodies of victims who had jumped. Ladder Company 20's ladder only reached the sixth floor, which was not much help since the fire was on the eighth floor and nets meant to save jumpers broke when groups of three or more people jumped together. Multiple 
other fire companies were called to the scene. Half an hour after the fire started, firefighters were finally able to put it out. In just 18 minutes, 144 workers died. Two more died while in the hospital in the days following the fire. Of the 146 victims, 123 were women and a majority were teenagers. The youngest victim was just 14 years old. Over 350,000 people joined the funeral march for the victims. The danger of fires in factories like the Triangle Shirtwaist was well known, but high levels of corruption in both the garment industry and city government generally ensured that no useful precautions were taken to prevent fires. Prior to the 1911 fire, owners Blank and Harris had been accused of deliberately starting fires at the Triangle Shirtwaist factory and their Diamond Waste Company factory before business hours in order to collect the large fire insurance policies they had purchased, which was a common practice at the time. While this was not the cause of the tragic 1911 fire, the previous fires did play a role, since Blank and Harris refused to install sprinkler systems and take other safety measures in case they needed to burn their shops again. The workers' union set up a march in New York City to protest the working conditions that led to the fire. It was attended by 80,000 people. Though there was widespread anger from the public, many defended Blank and Harris his right to resist government safety regulation. The owners would go on to be charged with manslaughter but were later acquitted by a jury despite strong evidence that they had been negligent. In 1914, they were ordered to pay $75, around $2,300 today, in damages to the families of the 23 victims who had sued them. However, Blank and Harris had earned $400 per victim from their insurance company. The fire helped to bring great change to the city and the United States as a whole. New York State passed the Sullivan Hui Fire Prevention Law, which made sprinkler systems mandatory in all factories. The tragedy also helped pass various national and state safety codes, including the National Labor Relations Act, which made American workplaces safer than they had ever been before. The Factory Investigating Commission of 1911 gathered testimony when they investigated factories throughout the state. They found 200 other factories with similar conditions to those that sparked the Triangle Shirt Waste Factory fire as well as abuse from factory owners. The commission crafted over 60 laws and passed many that made buildings safer against fire as well as more humane working conditions and minimum wage. Later that year, the city established the Bureau of Fire Investigation under the direction of Robert F. Wagner, which gave the fire department additional power to improve factory safety. The event crystallized supports for efforts to organize workers in the garment district and particular for the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, which made way for President Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal. It remains one of the most vivid signs for the American labor movement and a constant reminder that the government must ensure a safe workplace. The building that housed the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory is now part of New York University's campus and is a historical landmark. Until 9-11, the fire was the deadliest workplace disaster in New York City history. A memorial was held on the fire's 100th anniversary and a permanent memorial is in the works. It is remembered as one of the most infamous incidents in American industrial history and it's the worst fire in the history of New York City. Few other disasters have had a greater impact on people's lives and passed so many pieces of legislation. Avoidable tragedies like the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire are still going on today. One notable instance was the Tazreen Fashions Garment Factory fire. On November 24, 
2012, a fire started in the Tazreen Fashions Garment Factory near Dhaka, Bangladesh. The fire was likely caused by a short circuit on the ground floor and it quickly spread throughout the factory's nine floors. Just like the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, exits in the Tazreen Fashions Factory were locked. Narrow or blocked fire escapes also trapped workers inside the burning building. They were forced to jump out windows on the upper floors since the lower level windows had bars on them. One survivor would later share that the factory owners tried to tell them that there was no fire. The fire killed at least 112 people and many died inside the building or while waiting to jump from the windows. Those who did jump were injured and in some cases had severe head and back injuries that still leave them in constant pain. The Tazreen factory produced materials for international companies including Walmart, Gap, Disney, and a company owned by Sean P. Diddy Combs in the U.S. It was also home to Spain's El Corte Inglés department store and German retailer KIK, among others. It took over three years for the families of those killed and injured to receive any type of compensation. An investigation found that when the fire broke out, managers and security guards told workers it was part of a regular drill and it was too late for many to escape. In December 2013, 13 months after the fire, Bangladesh filed a warrant for the arrest of Delwar Hussein, the owner and managing director of Tazreen Fashions Limited. 14 months after the fire, Hussein was charged with the death by negligence of the victims and was awaiting his trial in prison until 2014. And I really have not seen any updates since then, so I'm not sure what has happened to him. Just five months after the Tazreen fire was the collapse of the Rana Plaza building. On April 24, 2013, 1,134 garment workers, mostly women, were killed when the Rana Plaza building near Dhaka, Bangladesh collapsed. An estimated 2,500 people were injured. The Rana Plaza collapse is the deadliest accident in the history of the garment industry. The Rana Plaza building housed a number of different garment factories and collapsed during the morning rush. Retailers that produced clothes within the factories included JCPenney's, Walmart, Mango, Primark, and many other international brands. The day before the collapse, the building was evacuated due to cracks appearing in the walls. That same day, workers were allowed back in the building or told to return by factory owners. The factory and several others in the area were built on swampy marshes, which were not meant to hold factories. The building was only meant to have five stories, but more was added without a permit. It was also originally designed as a commercial building and not an industrial building, meaning it was not meant to withstand the added weight and vibrations from factory machinery. Cautious workers showed up to work the next day with cracks still in the building. Managers threatened to fire or withhold wages of workers who did not return to work. None of the factories within the building had unions, making it difficult for workers to have their needs met. The Bangladeshi government began search and rescue efforts. The UN offered their assistance, but the government refused. The owner of the building, Sohel Rana, attempted to escape in fear of prosecution. He was later arrested and in August 2017 sentenced to a maximum three-year imprisonment by a court for failing to declare his personal wealth to Bangladesh's anti-graph commission. His murder trial resumed in February 2022. Rana, his his parents and 34 others were charged with causing the deaths of the workers, along with four others charged with sheltering Rana. Del, what are your thoughts on these three stories? 
So I think they are all examples of greed and how money will make people completely forget the humanity of others, especially those working for them. I am very familiar with the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire, as that's something that I learned about in school when we were talking about organized labor and the different changes that were made to the laws that increased the protection for workers, especially the one example of changing building codes so that doors always open outwards instead of inwards, because that was one of the contributing factors to how devastating that fire was. I wasn't familiar with the other two, but it follows the same pattern where owners had no regard for the people that were in their building and work. I think something else that is exhibited is just the disconnect that exists when international companies outsource their manufacturing needs to countries and bear little responsibility to the conditions that the workers have to make their products in. And I think that a lot of times you hear, well, that was a subcontractor or we're not completely responsible or we have no control over what happens. And to me, at the end of the day, if you are allowing your products to be produced in the factory that is subprimal conditions for its workers, you should be held to account. So what are your thoughts, Jenny? I had also learned about the Triangle Factory Fire in school and I didn't realize, I guess, that it had such an impact. I mean, leading to the New Deal, that brought so much good to the country. And I wish we could have the government take action now the way it seemed to really more so be willing to do back then. It's awful that those workers had to die and suffer the way they did. Again, like we've said multiple times in many different episodes, it's because of this awful thing that happened that we have so much good and it brought safer conditions like within the next few years to factories. And factories were really big sources of income and sometimes like the only job people could get, especially at that time. And, you know, that's clearly still what's going on in the world today. It's just sad to see that some things don't really change And I mean, locking people inside the building, that's despicable. To not even give someone a break, I can't imagine that. It's unreal. And like you said, Del, that is why people feel very disconnected. Blank and Harris seem like pieces of shit. Just greedy people that were ruthless and would stop at nothing to make a profit no matter who suffered. Workers really were disposable. And in some industries around the world, America included, they're still seen as disposable. And it's horrible that people have to go through that. I did not really know much about the Rana Plaza collapse going into this, but how horrible. Over a thousand people died. Again, mainly women dying. This is an industry that's predominantly made up of women workers, and I think that also adds to people seeing them as disposable. You know, like, you get hurt, we have 10 more people that are going to take your place. We don't really care. So we've kind of hinted at the exploitative labor and working conditions that were at all of these factories that we're talking about. So we're going to dive into them a little bit more. Like we said at the start of the episode, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory and garment factories in general had deplorable working conditions. They were dark and poorly ventilated, which led workers to having strained eyes and breathing problems. Foremans kept a close watch on workers and scolded them for talking or making mistakes. Workers were lucky to even have a 30-minute lunch break. Many were not even allowed breaks to use the bathroom, which led to unsanitary workplace and health concerns. 
Many factories were cold in the winter and sweltering in the summer, leading to the creation of the term quote-unquote sweatshop. Death or injury at the workplace was common at this point in time, and factory owners found it cheap to replace injured workers with new ones instead of improving working conditions. As mentioned before, many workers were immigrants from Eastern or Southern Europe who spoke little English and were therefore easy to take advantage of. They lived in poverty in cramped tenements and faced health issues and malnourishment. As for working conditions in Bangladesh factories, we've got some more information too. Bangladesh is known to have some of the cheapest labor in the world and factories once again have deplorable working conditions as there is little regulation. Many workers are under the age of 18, which violates child labor standards. Wages are often stolen from employees. A survivor of the Tazreen fire claimed she was working 11 to 13 hour days, six to seven days a week and making just $55 a month. If workers make a mistake, they are sometimes beaten by managers. And though inspections take place, factories are often cleaned up and workers are coached on what to say. About 4 million people in Bangladesh work in the clothing industry. At the time of the Tazreen fire, there had been over 600 garment factory fires in a five-year period. Like Tazreen and Triangle Shirtwaist, many factories have blocked or locked exits and inadequate fire extinguishers. It's the norm for many workers in third world countries to be exploited. Workers are often fired when they attempt to form unions and some are even killed. Though the International Labor Organization, the ILO, sets labor standards, they've been criticized for not actually implementing the change that they promise and industries often go unregulated. Workers' rights groups have continuously warned large U.S. retailers about the dangers to factory workers. Many accuse Walmart and other retailers of playing a role in the Tazreen fire and Rana Plaza disaster since they have been warned of the factory conditions. Walmart even received a letter in 2012 that stated, quote, the factory had violations and or conditions which were deemed to be high risk, end quote. They had gone to deny claims that they were producing clothes in the Tazreen factory. According to the New York Times, Walmart played a significant role in blocking reforms to have retailers pay more for apparel in order to help Bangladesh factories improve their safety standards. After the Rana Plaza tragedy, many larger factories in Bangladesh comply to meet new safety standards, but smaller factories have not. Many unions have also been organized since then. The Bangladesh Accord on Fire and Building Safety was created and signed by several international brands, which also made factories safer than they were when the Tazreen fire took place. However, there is still much to be done to improve safety, pay, and hours. Holds of conduct continuously used by apparel companies to monitor the working conditions of their suppliers focus on building safety and physical infrastructure. These holds are poorly implemented, allowing building fires and collapses to continue. They also ignore many things that threaten workers' health and well-being on a day-to-day basis. It's up to the Bangladeshi government, factory owners, and managers, and international brands to work together to ensure working conditions are improved and that workers can freely exercise their rights.
advocates. Advocates also called on retailers to help with compensation efforts to victims and their families. A meeting with retailers who used the Tazring factory took place in Europe to discuss compensation, but no U.S. retailers attended. The Rana Plaza Donor Trust Fund was set up to help compensate survivors. The fund was open to public donations and large retailers who used the factories for production also pledge funds. Del, do you think that these companies are responsible for the tragedies that ensue at the factories? Absolutely, they are responsible. At the end of the day, whether they are directly in contact with the factories or there is some type of middle person that is producing Walmart or other retailers clothes in those factories, the U.S. retailers are the people that want their products made. They are outsourcing it to make it cheaper to produce. And so when failures happen, they have to be held responsible. I think that it is a shame and sickening that they have continuously avoided any type of liability when it comes to these disasters, both large and small. I think that if you want your clothes made cheap, then you have to accept the responsibility that comes with that. It is no coincidence that they consistently choose countries that have very low standards for worker safety and workers' rights. I think that they know that if they were to choose a different country, that they would not be able to avoid liability and avoid compensating victims in the way that they have. And I hope that international organizations like the United Nations and other NGOs step up and really put Walmart and other international retailers' feet to the fire when it comes to making sure that they are respecting workers' rights, whether they work in the United States or not. What are your thoughts on that? I absolutely agree. It's the definition of profits over people. They are definitely responsible. Whether they are warned or it is like a set it and forget it kind of thing, they should be checking in. A lot of companies do use the excuse of, subcontracting and that does lead to some companies not knowing where their clothing and materials are being produced which I also think is an issue why don't you know where your stuff is coming from doesn't seem like a good way to run a business and I also think some of them just truly don't care these companies just want cheaper and cheaper products which leads to cheaper labor they're going outside of their parent company because of the cheap labor companies are also pressuring these factories to produce materials faster and at any cost so that's obviously going to lead to some safety concerns and working for hours and whatnot. I think there is a little bit of a collective responsibility. I think factories can demand that their factories be made safe or we're not doing business with you anymore. We're going to move somewhere else. And in Bangladesh, so much of the economy is around garment factories and factories in general. So if someone was going to move their business elsewhere, it would affect the economy. I think too, as buyers, we have some power. I don't think the responsibility is on us. Do I think that there is an issue with over consuming? fashion? Definitely. Obviously, people want the cheapest prices. And especially, you know, with how things are in the US, not a lot of people are paid a living wage. We can't afford sustainable fashions. Sustainable fashion isn't always, you know, accessible. And it also doesn't fit everyone. There's not a lot of options. So I don't think it's really fair to us. But we do need to know where our clothes are coming from too. what's going in 
into them what the true cost of fashion is. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about these garment factory tragedies. You can read more about these cases and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode focused on the suspicious murder of actor Bob Crane. As always, stay safe.